1: The whole deal is like some kind of crazy game. They put you at the starting line, and the name of the game is Make It Through Life. Only everyone's out for themselves and looking to do you in at the same time. Okay, man, here we are. Here we are. Now, you do what you can. But remember, I'm going to do my best to blow your ass away. So how are you going to make it? I deliver a hard day's work for the money, I just want the chance, it'll come. I believe in America, I follow the rules. Everybody's got their own hard times these days.
2: And you've always thought you couldn't air press on nails because of all the active things you do? Well, if you're
0: ready for beautiful, natural-looking, easy-to-apply nails, pre-colored
1: in seven luscious hues yes our impulses are being redirected we are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep oh goddamn
0: hacker that second time night that asshole cut in
1: the movement was begun eight months ago by a small group of scientists who discovered quite by accident these signals being sent through town
0: Given me a headache. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. (sighs) That took the hackers months to figure out how to do this.
1: The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society, and we are their unwitting accomplices. Their intention to rule rests with the annihilation of consciousness. We have been lulled into a trance. They have made us indifferent to ourselves, to others. We are focused only on our own game. Please understand, they are safe as long as they are not discovered. That is their primary method of survival. Keep us asleep. Keep us selfish. Keep us sedated. They're pulling the water out of the sand like sponge. Blow it out From your out ass. Spell, yeah. They are dismantling the sleeping middle class. More and more people are becoming poor. We are their cattle. We are being bred for slavery. The revolution.
0: Not again. We
1: cannot break their signal. Our transmitter is not powerful enough the signal must be shut off at the source we have daddy I have a headache me too honey
0: in the pork chop express and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. Like I told my last wife, I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's on the reflexes. You just listen to the old pork chop express and take his advice on a dark and stormy night, all right? When some wild-eyed, eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck, taps the back of your favorite head up against a barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye, and he asks you if you've paid your dues. Well, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. I'm not saying that I've been everywhere and I've done everything. But I do know it's a pretty amazing planet we live on here. And a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. It's all in the reflexes. All right, we're almost out of here. Now from here on it gets pretty normal. Office, of store, it was a nice false front. I count to three. Hello, I open that door. We move joy. out. Everybody got that? Everybody Ready? Got Follow the leader. One, two, three. We may be trapped. Ah, you know what old Jack Burton always says at a time like this? Cool? Jack Burton, me. Jack always says, what the hell?
2: Greetings, scholar warriors and fellow travelers, CJ here, your humble hazardous history helmsman and renaissance man for this new dark age, here with dose number 174 of the Dangerous History podcast, which will be part two of our DHP Heroes coverage of the filmmaker John Carpenter. Just to let you all know, in the relatively near future, actually on December 17th, I am going to be going under the knife. I am going to be having some surgery done, and it's something I should be able to recover from relatively quickly, but who knows, we'll see. So I may be slowed down and out of action a little bit for at least a few days, if not a week or two after that happens. I'm going to try very hard to get the last Not-So-Civil War episode done before I go under the knife, but I can't guarantee it. It's going to be a pretty big episode, and like I've mentioned previously, I accidentally lost the file of about, I forget, an hour or two, somewhere between an hour and two hours. I already had totally done for that last Not-So-Civil War episode, and I completely lost the file, somehow erased it, and was not able to recover it so i 'm going to do my best to try to get that finished before I have surgery, but there's a possibility i won't be able to, so just wanted to let you all know that that that's in the works Where we left off last time, Carpenter had had a string of very profitable hit movies that did pretty well, both in terms of the box office and critical responses. But then the thing in nineteen eighty two was a relative flop. And even though it would pretty soon become a cult classic, and even though it would eventually be reconsidered by the critics, and would come to be thought of as one of Carpenter's best, at the time it was originally released, it was enough of a disappointment that Carpenter's career took a bit of a dive, even though a few of his best films were still to come. Before the thing was released, Carpenter had been contracted by Universal, to work on a film version of Stephen King's Firestarter. But after The Thing's release, Carpenter was basically fired from that project and replaced with another director. However, Carpenter's next film would end up being another Stephen King adaptation, Christine. A project that Carpenter says he wasn't super excited about, but which he basically took on because he needed the work after The Thing. Now, I didn't realize this until I did research for this show, but at the time that work began on the film of Christine, the novel Christine wasn't even done yet. It was just a manuscript. It had not yet been published as a finished novel. And in fact, the novel would end up being published in April of 1983, just eight months before the movie was released. Christine, a story set in the late 1970s, is the story of a nerdy teenager named Arnie Cunningham, and a very, very special, in a bad way, 1958 Plymouth Fury, named, of course, Christine. I think, in the novel, which I read like 20 years ago, that the car is basically haunted by the spirit of an earlier owner, and in the film it's depicted that the car is just sort of inherently possessed, with some sort of evil entity from the time that it's built. Anyway, our nerdy protagonist buys the battered old Plymouth Fury and begins restoring it, and as he does so, his personality begins to change significantly. Now, in a way, he becomes more of a cool guy. He gets some confidence, he starts to dress like a 50s greaser, and he even gets a girlfriend. But on the other hand, his personality also starts to become more volatile and more dark and aggressive and paranoid, and he starts to alienate his friend and his girlfriend. Eventually, some of the dark history of the car's backstory starts to come out, and various people start to target the car, but the car is willing and able to defend itself violently. This film is a great nostalgic sort of time capsule of 1980s Stephen King and 1980s John Carpenter, sort of a snapshot of where both of these giants of the horror genre were in books and film Respectively, at the time. It is an entertaining film, and Carpenter really does do a good job of making the car really seem to be alive and have personality. Some of the scenes of the car fixing itself, for example, are pretty impressive, especially considering that Carpenter, back in the early 80s, couldn't just be lazy and rely on CGI shortcut magic the way most filmmakers of the last 20 years or so probably would have done. And of course, the soundtrack includes some great old-school rock and roll. On a budget of about $10 million, the film made around $21 million, so pretty profitable, more so than The Thing, but not a wildly successful blockbuster by any means. By the way, about a half million dollars of the film's budget was spent acquiring 23 different Plymouth Furies in various conditions to use in various ways throughout the film. Michelle LeBlanc and Colin Odell in their book John Carpenter sum the film up as follows:: quote, "Christine is eminently watchable, enjoyable horror fun. That does exactly what a good Hollywood no-brainer should. Its weakness lies in the necessarily sketchy characterization and unsatisfactory conclusion end quote." And I'd basically agree with that. Again, it's been probably 20 years since I read the book by Stephen King, and I've watched the film much more recently than that. But even just based on my recollections of what I thought about the book, I would say that in terms of both the book in relation to Stephen King's work and the movie in relation to Carpenter's work, that it's neither of their best work, but it's pretty good. The film currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 69, and I'd give it a bit better grade than that if I was giving it like a letter grade percentage, maybe around an 80% low B as a letter grade. It's not in my top five favorite Carpenter films, but it's definitely in my top ten. And in regard to the novel in relationship to my opinion of Stephen King's work, since Stephen King has produced way more novels than John Carpenter has films... Because of that, Christine would not be in my top ten favorite Stephen King books, simply because there's just so many other books of his that I think are better. But it's pretty good. Carpenter's next film after Christine would be his first that would be primarily a romance in terms of its story, though it would also be a sci-fi film at the same time. So it's only partially outside of his usual wheelhouse, and I'm talking about 1984's Starman. It's definitely a different type of film for Carpenter. It's basically a sci-fi romantic comedy, which there can't be too many of those out there. I mean, I haven't done any sort of a study to try and ascertain, but I don't think there are too many sci-fi romantic comedies out there in existence. In part, he seems to have perhaps done this movie as a reaction against The Thing, trying to show he wasn't just sort of a gore movie one-trick pony, and also trying to make up for the lackluster financial performance of The Thing, in part by doing sort of the opposite, by having a more benevolent alien, as compared to the alien in The Thing. In the film, Jeff Bridges plays an alien who comes to Earth as a scout after receiving a message from the Voyager 2 space probe. The alien's craft gets shot down by the U.S. government, and it crashes in Wisconsin and takes the form of a woman's dead husband. And the widow in question is played by Karen Allen, who's probably best known for playing Marion in Raiders of the Lost Ark. The alien makes this widow take him to a rendezvous point where he's supposed to get picked up by others of his type, which happens to be in Arizona, so they have to travel there while trying to evade the U.S. government, who, of course, want to get their hands on the alien. The story is in some ways very similar to E.T., with the difference of there being a romantic element that develops over time. And in fact, the alien and Karen Allen eventually even have sex, and the alien impregnates Karen Allen's character, although she had previously been infertile. The film does have some admirable sort of anti-authority, anti-government aspects to it, with the director of the National Security Agency being one of the main villains, so I can definitely get behind those aspects of it. LeBlanc and O'Dell write of this film, quote, In many respects, Starman shares its basic premise with The Thing, in that an alien crash-lands to Earth and assumes human form. The difference is that Starman is basically a nice guy and not a ruthless killer, but has the ability to be just as violent should the situation require it. While not likely to appeal to the audience who screamed at Halloween or grossed out to The Thing, Starman still manages to be a Carpenter film. One for dewy-eyed romantics who don't mind saccharine sentimentalities and occasionally ludicrous plot elements, it is also one of the few Carpenter films that features a sex scene and it has a PG rating, end quote. On a budget of around $22 million, the film made around $28 million in the U.S. Jeff Bridges was actually nominated for the Oscar for Best Actor for his role in this film, although he did not win. Starman is the only Carpenter film to ever receive any sort of Oscar nomination at all. The film was generally positively reviewed when it came out, and currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 81. Personally, I'd give it a bit lower than that, maybe like a 75%, but that's probably just my own biases in terms of genre, and in terms of what it is I really like about John Carpenter. And this film just doesn't have enough of the things that I really love in my favorite Carpenter films. Now that said, it's certainly not a bad film, and it's bar from being my least favorite Carpenter film. I've actually, to be honest with you, not sat down and watched this movie in probably at least 20 years. And I remember last time I saw it being mostly just kind of bored. But this may have in large part just been because of my age at the time, and also just the fact that I'm not a big romance movie person in general, and was even less so inclined to those movies 20 years ago than I am now, which is saying something and I've just not felt a strong urge to re-watch this since then. Life is short, my time is very limited, and there's just lots of other stuff to do, and even in the realm of sitting and watching movies, there's a lot of stuff I'd rather watch than this. By contrast, the next film Carpenter would direct is one of my all-time favorites, not just in terms of his library of work, but in terms of films in general. It's a movie I've watched literally dozens of times. I have no idea how many times I've re-watched this, including as recently as just a few months ago when I took my kids to see it on the big screen at our local movie theater as part of what they call flashback cinema, where classic films are shown on the big screen and you can go see them. And of course, I'm talking about the 1986 film Big Trouble in Little China, would be arguably Carpenter's most genre-blending one yet, and perhaps in all of his body of work. It would be a combination of a martial arts action movie and a horror movie with lots of fantasy and tons of humor in it as well. I absolutely love it, but sometimes the dumbass general public doesn't get films and books that are not easy to pigeonhole in a single genre, or at least they don't get them initially, and it may take a while to come around. The original screenplay for what became Big Trouble in Little China was going to be an actual Western, meaning set in the American Old West— with the main protagonist Jack Burton being a cowboy and then still having a lot of Chinese characters and a heavy martial arts and Asian fantasy element inspired by Hong Kong kung fu films. So it was originally going to be really a weird western, which is a sub that I love, but the studio didn't want to do that for various reasons, so they took the screenplay from the original writers of it and sent it to another one to take the basic story idea and set it in a modern-day 1980 San Francisco. John Carpenter then came on board very eager to make a movie that included kung fu movie elements, but that also, despite being changed to a modern-day setting still contained a lot of Western elements and tropes as well. The basic synopsis of Big Trouble, and this will by no means do justice to it—you really need to see it if you haven't—is that A trucker named Jack Burton comes into San Francisco, you know, making his rounds, doing his routes, and through his relationship with a friend in Chinatown named Wang Chi, he ends up getting pulled into what at first seems like an organized crime situation, but then turns into something much more ominous and big and supernatural, as Burton, Wang, a lawyer named Gracie Law, and a tour bus driver slash good Chinese sorcerer named Egg Shen, along with some other sidekicks and allies, get into a confrontation with an ancient, evil Chinese sorcerer named David Lo Pan, and his army of henchmen, some of whom are supernatural and some of whom are even monsters. The good guys are trying to rescue Wang's girlfriend from Lo Pan, and later trying to rescue Gracie Law as well when she gets taken by the bad guys. The battle against Lo Pan is going to include some crazy, over-the-top, Hong Kong-style martial arts battles, as well as some magic. And along the way, Jack Burton is going to spout all kinds of great lines. He's a very quotable character, but he's also going to mostly screw up, except near the end when it counts the most. And I'll just leave my synopsis there. If you've seen the film, you don't need more synopsis, and if you haven't seen the film, you really ought to go see it. One of Carpenter's favorite and most frequent collaborators, Kurt Russell, was cast to play Jack Burton, the film's protagonist. He's a very interesting and entertaining protagonist, because on the one hand, he's a macho, take-charge character who, in many ways, is a Western hero— A trucker rather than a cowboy, but in all other ways, a classic Western hero, a rugged, individualistic loner who makes his own rules, but who does seem to have a sense of right and wrong and so forth. However, what makes Jack Burton so much more interesting than most protagonists of that sort is that he's also not that competent not nearly as competent as he thinks he is, and he gets in over his head pretty much all the time, and he often, though not always, screws things up. He's kind of like Indiana Jones in that regard, except Jack Burton is even more prone to screwing up and getting in over his head than Dr. Jones is. And Kurt Russell really nails the character, in my opinion. He makes Burton funny and plays him as a parody both of himself and of other such, you know, macho man action movie characters. But he does it in a charming, believable sort of way in which you're still rooting for Jack Burton and you don't look down on him in some sort of contemptuous way. Unlike how a lot of more recent movies have dealt with other kind of deconstructionist characters, such as when they make the macho male into a complete object of just absolute contempt and ridicule with seemingly no redeeming qualities. Now, I like deconstructionism in films when it's done skillfully, when it's done in still kind of a sympathetic way with some nuance, Another example of this being done well, though in a very different sort of way in a very different film that's much more serious, is in the Clint Eastwood film Unforgiven. There's a lot of deconstruction of standard Western tropes in that film, but it's not done in a simplistic or artificial feeling way, as is so often the case in more recent movies. See the bag of shit known as the 2016 Ghostbusters if you want an example of deconstruction done in a very ham-fisted, incompetent way that makes for a painful film that's hard to even watch. On second thought, I don't recommend you actually watch this thing, Ghostbusters of 2016. Instead, watch a competent review of it on YouTube if you're curious as to just how bad it is and why it's so bad. It's not because it's deconstructionist, it's because it's very clumsy, simplistic, not-at-all-funny-or-sympathetic deconstructionist. While Kurt Russell imitated Clint Eastwood when he was portraying Snake Pliskin, for his portrayal of Jack Burton in Big Trouble, his strategy was to basically imitate John Wayne. Actor Dennis Dunn plays Jack Burton's Chinese friend and sidekick Wang Chi. And by the way, I don't think Dunn is a very good actor, to be honest with you. Even though I love this film, and I love the other Carpenter film that Dunn was in, which was Prince of Darkness, which I'll be talking about next, despite the fact that I love both the movies that he's in of John Carpenter's, I still think Dunn's acting in both films is mostly pretty bad. In the film, though, Wang is sort of set up as Jack's sidekick, But in most instances, he's actually much more competent and capable than Jack is, and in many ways, he's really more of the actual hero of the film. So the movie is abending the usual hero-sidekick relationship, and while it's by no means the first or last film to do this, it does it in a fairly smooth, believable way that doesn't feel forced or artificial. It doesn't feel like Carpenter's trying to clumsily shoehorn the story into some pre-existing political-slash-racial narrative, more that he's telling a good story about believable characters, but he's also having some fun subverting the normal expectations in the process, and doing it skillfully in, in a way that makes for a fun movie, unlike other films we could name, that subvert expectations in ways that are just bad. On the idea for the character of Jack Burton, Carpenter said in one of the interviews in the 2003 book Prince of Darkness, quote, Who better to stick into this kind of Asian underground than the man who won Vietnam for us in the Green Berets, namely John Wayne. Jack Burton is John Wayne, and Kurt is playing it blowhard John Wayne. And that's all that he's doing. He's playing John Wayne the man, It tickled me for a long time to do that because in all action movies, and it's still happening, the white American is always the cool guy. And yet, Burton is still, at the end of the day, at least in my opinion, a lovable character despite being kind of an idiot. As a guy who's in over his head, and who's struggling to understand all the crazy supernatural Chinese sorcery and whatnot that he's dealing with, he does fulfill the function of being the character that the audience can identify with, and through whom we kind of can enter this world of bizarre and seemingly unbelievable stuff. LeBlanc and Odell agree with my thoughts on this, by the way, and they write, "...key to the film is Jack, our rugged hero." He provides our gateway into another world, and his discoveries are ours too. What makes his character so memorable is the conflict between his accepted modes of behavior and the results of his actions. The comedy in the film is derived mainly from the fact that Jack's attempts at chivalry are not only ineffectual, but misguided and potentially dangerous too." End quote. Interestingly, even though Carpenter made the white protagonist into kind of a comic character for the most part, and actually made his Asian friends and allies the more competent ones, he nonetheless caught some flack from at least some Asians for allegedly being too stereotypical in the way the film depicted Asians and their culture. In the interview book, Prince of Darkness, Carpenter talks about how the Asians who were actually in the film were not at all offended by Big Trouble in Little China, but that others were offended on their behalf for the supposed stereotyping, quoting Carpenter. The Asian actors in Big Trouble in Little China all seemed to like the script. However, this was not true of several activists who felt it was racist. They objected to what they called white stereotypes of Asians, the Fu Manchu sort of thing. One gentleman, Henry Durr of San Francisco, did all he could to get me fired and get an Asian director hired in my place. He wanted me fired simply because I was white. Protests were staged. Even letters were written. Durr said, in effect, never forget that this is a movie directed by a white man for white audiences. It was insane. But because the Asian actor stood behind me as a director, the protest went nowhere, end quote. It's also kind of ironic in that the things that are in the movie that you could at least potentially characterize as, you know, stereotyping of Asians and their culture and whatever really more than anything else, come from the fact that the film was deliberately trying to be an homage and be inspired by a lot of the kung fu films of the mid to late 20th century that were coming primarily out of Hong Kong. And so perhaps what's going on here, the anger at Carpenter seemingly just because he is a white man, Saying that the film is negatively stereotyping Asians while basically at least kind of implying, well, if you just replaced him with an Asian director, then all of it would be kosher, it's almost like what you have here is an early case of the accusation of cultural appropriation being made, that since Carpenter's the director of the film, it's racist and stereotypical against Asians, but if you just replaced him with an Asian director, then everything would be fine. By the way, the always excellent, in my opinion, actor Victor Wong plays Egg Shen, and Victor Wong really makes Egg Shen into a cool, memorable, likable character, sort of like the Gandalf or Dumbledore figure within the story. Kim Cattrall plays Gracie Law, and she and Kurt Russell do a great job delivering kind of old-school, sassy movie dialogue between two characters who start off very antagonistic, but who over the course of the film do develop a mutual attraction. The film has another awesome Carpenter soundtrack, complete with ominous, moody synth mixed with rock and roll. At the time it came out, the film got what they call mixed reviews, and it actually lost a lot of money. The Thing had actually made a profit, but it was a very modest profit relative to its budget, and as such it was considered a financial failure. Big Trouble in Little China actually lost a significant amount of money. On a budget of around $25 million, it took in only $11 million at the box office when it first came out. LeBlanc and Odell write of this film, quote, In retrospect, it is easy to see why Big Trouble in Little China did such mediocre business upon its original release. It was just too far ahead of its time. It mixes the macho posturing of the Western hero with elements of Eastern fantasies to produce something the likes of which had not been seen in Hollywood." However, within a relatively short period of time, once it came out on VHS and then eventually DVD, the film developed a very strong cult following, and I'm very proud to be a card-carrying member of this particular cult. I didn't see this movie in the theaters when it first came out, as I was only five years old at the time, but I remember watching it on VHS for the first time when I was still in elementary school, so probably just a few years after it first came out on video, and I was completely taken with the film right off the bat. It might be the beginning of my love for genre blending stories and movies, especially ones in which there's some sort of mixture of western horror and sci-fi or fantasy elements. And a fair number of the fiction I've written have been blends of these sorts of genres, You know, space westerns, sci-fi westerns, weird westerns, horror westerns, and so forth. Big Trouble in Little China is a movie that's a lot of fun, and in my opinion at least, it's one that I can watch over and over and still want to watch again. There are a fair amount of movies that I loved when I was in fourth or fifth grade that... When I watch them now, I still have some affection for them, but I realize that it's just based on nostalgia, and that if I had seen these for the first time today, I'd think they were pretty terrible. A lot of the Van Damme and even a few of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies from the 80s and early 90s come to mind. But Big Trouble is one that I don't feel that way about. I still love it in a genuine sense, and I think it's just fun and brilliant. As with The Thing, over time, more people, though by no means everyone, have come around to see the value of the film, and it currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 78. Of course, in my book, it is a solid A to A-plus movie. There were plans to make a sequel before the movie was released, but they were scrapped when the film did so badly at the box office. But ever since the film started to achieve a really strong cult movie status there's been periodic motion and rumors and so forth on the front of a possible sequel or remake and most recently in august of 2018 there was at that point a production company that was talking about bringing back kurt russell to play jack burton in a sequel which sounds like it could be good especially if they would bring carpenter back to do the directing and the soundtrack Carpenter's getting old, and his last few movies haven't been very good, unfortunately, even to a fan like me, and I think it'd be really great if perhaps his career could end on a high note of directing a Big Trouble sequel that really, really was good. And I have to say, I like the idea of a sequel much better than the idea of a remake. I'm sick of remakes at this point. And in fact, there had been rumors, I think a few years ago, that Dwayne The Rock Johnson was involved with a possible remake with him as Jack Burton. And I'm sorry, I've liked some of the films The Rock has done, but he's also done some terrible ones. And I just don't want to see The Rock trying to be Jack Burton. Kurt Russell is Jack Burton, in the same degree that Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. That actor is that character, if anyone else tries to play it, their wrong end of story. Now, at the time of the original Big Trouble's release, the fact that a lot of moviegoers and critics just didn't get it made the film another blow to Carpenter's career. He had just been starting to bounce back career-wise from the thing, and then Big Trouble in Little China was a flop. In fact, in financial terms, it was an even bigger blow to Carpenter than had been the performance of The Thing, and this loss of money made him somewhat blacklisted by the major studios. Many years later, Carpenter would say of this quote, The experience of Big Trouble in Little China was the reason I stopped making movies for the Hollywood studios. I won't work for them again. I think Big Trouble is a wonderful film, and I'm very proud of it. But the reception it received, and the reasons for that reception, were too much for me to deal with. I'm too old for that sort of bullshit, end quote. Carpenter would return to independent filmmaking and would be making movies with modest budgets after this. And after the disappointing performance of Big Trouble, he'd go back to his bread and butter, namely straight-up horror. his next film would be Prince of Darkness in 1987. Like I said, with this film, Carpenter returned to just unequivocal horror, and doing so on a modest budget, now working with a smaller independent company called Alive Films, with whom he signed a deal to make several films with modest budgets of around $3 million. Prince of Darkness was another Carpenter triple threat film, meaning that he wrote it under the pseudonym Martin Quartermass, and he also directed it and made the soundtrack. In the film, an old priest dies at a decrepit church in a pretty rough-looking part of Los Angeles. Another priest, played by the great Donald Pleasance, who you may recall first worked with Carpenter playing the psychologist Loomis in Halloween, This other priest comes in after this old guy dies and finds, in the basement of this old abandoned church, a strange kind of cylinder of swirling and glowing green liquid that the priest realizes very quickly is something very, very abnormal. He contacts an acquaintance of his, a physicist named Walter Barak, who's played by Victor Wong, to come investigate and study this thing to figure out what it is. So. Barack puts together a team of graduate students, one of whom is played by Dennis Dunn of Big Trouble in Little China, to help to study this strange stuff. When the students arrive, weird things start happening pretty quickly, and the team begins to realize that they are dealing with some sort of ancient, evil, alien consciousness. Meanwhile, an army of seemingly possessed homeless people, led by one particular homeless man played by another, than rock star Alice Cooper, begin to assemble outside the church, and before long, people start getting killed and other dark things start happening as literally all hell starts to break loose, and all these scientists are trapped in this little church, unable to escape. I'll leave the synopsis there. See it for yourself if this sounds at all interesting to you. Prince of Darkness is clearly very influenced by the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, something Carpenter is very upfront about when discussing the movie. In fact, other than the film In the Mouth of Madness, Prince of Darkness is Carpenter's most Lovecraftian film. When it comes to critical reception upon its release, the initial reviews of this film were even worse than those for Big Trouble in Little China, and yet it did better at the box office, bringing in 14 million against a budget of only 3 million. In part, this better performance might be due to the fact that just in terms of genre, the film Prince of Darkness was easier to pigeonhole. Oh, it's a horror movie. There's not this kind of confusion and uncertainty the way there was with Big Trouble in Little China. Currently, this film holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of only 56, unlike some other Carpenter films that were initially poorly reviewed and were eventually kind of positively re-evaluated by critics. The reviews of Prince of Darkness, while they might be a little better than they were initially upon its release, are still not great. I personally like the film a lot better than that. Grading it for what it is, as kind of a B-movie horror movie, I'd give it a solid B+, A-, this film is perhaps the most culty of Carpenter's cult classic films, in that it has earned a much smaller cult following than something like Big Trouble in Little China, and it hasn't received anywhere near as much positive critical re-evaluations either. I actually really like Prince of Darkness. Despite some flaws, particularly in terms of a lot of the dialogue and most of the acting other than that done by Donald Pleasance and Victor Wong— Most of the actors and actresses in the film, other than Pleasance and Wong, are admittedly pretty weak, and by contrast, Pleasance and Wong are clearly superior, which is a real contrast when you're watching the movie between what seems like novices or even amateurs as compared to competent veteran professional actors. I don't think Prince of Darkness is Carpenter's best film, but for me at least, it's in my top five. The one thing that I really think this film just nails, even better than a lot of other Carpenter even better than a lot of other Carpenter films that are also good in this regard is this. Prince of Darkness absolutely succeeds in creating an ominous atmosphere from the get-go, from the first seconds of the movie, and then in slowly building that atmosphere of ominous portents over the course of the film's runtime. Now, people who aren't really horror movie fans will probably never get this film, but I think that most horror fans will will really appreciate this movie on multiple levels, despite admittedly having some flaws in some areas. In their coverage of this film, LeBlanc and O'Dell say the following, quote, The whole film is one long mood builder, with one of Carpenter's most downbeat scores driving events forward with increasing momentum. Although Prince of Darkness is flawed, it is, nevertheless, a brave stab at cerebral horror, end quote. And I strongly agree with this assessment. As far as I can remember, I didn't see this movie until I watched it on VHS as a teenager, probably around 10 years or so after the movie first came out. And I do vaguely remember that it creeped me out on the first viewing and that it definitely stood head and shoulders above most other kind of B-movie horror films from the mid to late 80s. I also agree with LeBlanc and Odell that in many ways it's a cerebral horror movie. There's sort of some attempt to work in kind of theoretical quantum physics ideas and to to reconcile those with old school theological ideas about good and evil and God and Satan. And all that stuff's really cool. At the same time, though, there is a fair amount of gore and gross out special effects in the movie. It's not quite as over the top as some other films, but it's definitely there. It's not all thinking man's horror. Prince of Darkness is definitely a strong example of good filmmaking done with fairly meager resources. While Carpenter wasn't quite as constrained in terms of time and money with this film as he was when making the original Halloween, for example, he still shot the film in only 30 days and made it with a cost of only $3 million only one year after the release of Prince of Darkness, Carpenter released another film that was made on only $3 million with Alive Films, and it would be another one of my personal favorite Carpenter films, and one that's got a bit larger of a cult following than Prince of Darkness does. This, is w- this would be a film that would combine elements of horror and sci-fi and action with comedy and a pretty strong dose of satire and social commentary. And of course, I'm talking about the 1988 classic, They Live. They Live was another all-Carpenter extravaganza. It was written by Carpenter, this time under the pseudonym Frank Armitage, though it was inspired by the short story 8 o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson, which I confess I've never read. It's one of those things I keep every time I think about or I watch They Live. I think, ah, I need to go read that story, and then I never get around to it. Carpenter also, of course, directed the film and did the musical score for it, the latter in cooperation with Alan Howarth, who has frequently collaborated with Carpenter on soundtracks for his films. The soundtrack of this film is identifiably Carpenter, but it's a little bit different from his usual, in that it has a little bit more of a bluesy rock kind of down-and-out feel mixed into it, and at times a little bit of a Western feel, something like Once Once Upon a Time in the West, for example. The film tells the story of a man who is called Nada in the credits, though in the film I don't think he or anyone ever actually says his name, and Nada is played by the wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. Nada arrives in Los Angeles in the middle of what seems like a severe economic downturn, in which many average people are suffering, while the wealthy seem to be doing quite fine. Fancy consumerism and pop culture are being pushed by the media while the masses are descending further into poverty, but the mass culture of things like television are distracting them, sort of acting as opiates of the masses. Nada manages to get a job on a construction site, and there he befriends a man named Frank, who is played by the great Keith David. Frank helps Nada get settled at a shelter that's basically a shantytown where a lot of unemployed or underemployed people are living. The opening scenes of this movie give you the look and feel of urban and social decay in a post-industrial America, better than most movies that have tried to do this. Prince of Darkness actually does it pretty well in parts, but it's not the focus of the film. Robocop, the original Robocop, comes in my mind, comes to my mind as the only other 80s movie I can easily think of that just conveys this feel so well. This feel of urban and industrial decay and decline. In fact, Keith David's character, Frank, even says that he came from Detroit, and he talks about steel mills and factories closing down. He initially is much more critical of the system, and Roddy Piper's character is much more saying things like, I believe in America, I'm just going to work harder, blah blah blah. However, when Nada starts to observe some weird things going on in the church that's right next to the shelter, Frank, despite sounding a bit more political in their earlier conversations, kind of urges him to turn away from it. One night, the church and the shantytown are raided by militarized cops, Again, as in Escape from New York, Carpenter really nails the depiction of militarized cops operating in an an environment of urban decay. Scenes of cops destroying the shelter and attacking the residents of it, including beating a blind black preacher, are pretty powerful. After all this, Nada realizes that the church was a headquarters for some sort of resistance movement, and he goes to the wreckage of the church and finds, of all things, a box of sunglasses. Turns out, when he puts them on, he can see the truth. The truth turns out to be that in much of the mass media and advertising, there are subliminal messages of social control and subordination and consumerism. Messages like obey, conform, consume, do not question authority, and so forth. And furthermore, the truth also is that the elites of the society are actually ugly-looking alien creatures in disguise. When Nada takes off the sunglasses, everything looks normal, but when he puts them on, things turn black and white, but also he's able to see all these disturbing realities that are normally concealed. Like I said, the people who are the aliens are the economic and political elites, including the president, whom Nada sees on TV, who sang all sorts of positive-sounding platitudes about cynicism being gone in America, and it's morning again in America, and all these sorts of things, a clear, direct reference to Ronald Reagan. And most, though not all, of the cops are these aliens, too. Nada ends up going on a rampage against some of the aliens he encounters. The aliens realize that he can really see them for what they are, and they use communicators in their wristwatches to alert others, and Nada has to fight and evade to get away from them. When Nada tries to get his friend Frank to put on a pair of these sunglasses, Frank strongly refuses, saying he does not want to get involved, he does not want to know what's really going on. Nada tries to force him to put the glasses on, and the two end up having a brutal, extended street brawl that goes on for around five whole minutes, which has become a classic fight scene that is often listed in lists of top movie fight scenes and so forth. It is not a typical polished Hollywood fight full of unrealistic, almost ballet-type choreography and all that sort of stuff. Instead, it's pretty brutal and ugly. Piper, who of course was a pro wrestler, choreographed and trained with Keith David so that they did it with no stunt doubles as far as I know. This fight scene, by the way, inspired the so-called cripple fight in South Park between the two handicapped characters on the show, Timmy and Jimmy, that took place in episode two of season five of South Park. The fight scene between Timmy and Jimmy is almost perfectly copied in terms of sequence and timing and shots and moves and so forth, and I'll post a link in the show notes of this episode to some YouTube videos, one of which has the original They Live fight scene side-by-side with the cripple fight from South Park, and another of which has the South Park audio playing over the over the They Live video. An interesting thing I've thought about in regard to this fight scene, which whether deliberate or not, the fact that Frank and Nada are a black guy and a white guy. This forms an interesting metaphor as the working class whites and blacks fight each other instead of uniting against their common enemy. And I think it's a deliberate metaphor based on some of the things that Frank says, both earlier in the movie and then later on after the fight. This idea that Howard Zinn, for example, brings up very often, that the elites tend to like it when the poor whites and poor blacks are going at each other, because it's sort of a divide-and-conquer political strategy. Anyway, finally after the brawl ends, Frank puts on the glasses, both of them now having had the shit beat out of them, and Frank puts on the glasses and sees the truth, and he ends up joining Nada and going into hiding while also trying to figure out if they can somehow strike back They end up making contact with an underground resistance movement and try to infiltrate and destroy the aliens' capabilities of control by attacking the source of their mind-control signals that blind everyone to the truth. And I'll end my synopsis there. You've really got to see this movie if you've not already. And if you have, maybe see it again when you have the chance. Carpenter says he was motivated to make this movie, quote, Because I got fed up with being told over and over again that it was so beneficial to be a consumer, we are no longer producing anything in the United States. We are just consuming and eating our way through. We are buying things, accumulating things, throwing money away, but we aren't making anything good anymore. It was just starting to outrage me. I was more reacting on an intellectual level than an emotional level. End quote. When asked if this was a Marxist movie, Carpenter said, quote, It's a movie speaking out against unrestrained capitalism. Since I don't think Marxism is the solution, I wouldn't say it's a Marxist movie. End quote. Regarding the now-classic super-long street fight scene between Roddy Piper and Keith David, Carpenter says, quote, First, I wanted to do a great long fight. Secondly, I had actors who were physically capable of that kind of fight. Roddy worked with Keith David for a month and a half on that fight to the point where they were making contact. They really went right at it, and that was what made the fight as convincing as it was. End quote. Upon its initial release, They Live seems to have received kind of mixed to a little bit positive reviews, but the film is pretty well liked by critics now and holds an RT score of 84. Personally, I'd give the film a solid A in my book. For a fairly low-budget kind of B-movie that does social criticism and satire through a mixture of horror, sci-fi, action, and comedy, I have to say, for what it is, it's damn near perfect in my book. And while in many ways it's a dark, downbeat, pessimistic film, it's also a lot of fun. Which is pretty much what could be said about most of Carpenter's best films, I think. At the box office, upon its release, They Live actually performed very similarly to Prince of Darkness, earning $13 million on its $3 million budget, so it was profitable, but by no means a huge blockbuster. However, this one I think became a cult classic pretty much immediately from what I can tell upon its release, and this status was only increased once it came out on VHS, and eventually DVD. I'm not sure when I first saw this movie. It might have been in the 90s when I was a teenager, but right off the bat, I immediately got the metaphor. It resonated with me. Even as a youngster, I had my doubts about authority and the system and all that stuff. And this movie really just spoke to that. I think only The Matrix has had a similar resonance in terms of being a metaphor for kind of waking up and discovering uncomfortable truths about the society and the system that you live in, including the truth about the elites who rule over it all, that they're not like us people down in the cheap seats. They're almost a different species. These sorts of truths that most other people are oblivious to and that many people among the exploited livestock masses will literally and metaphorically fight against having their eyes open to as signified by the scene of the street brawl between Roddy Piper and Keith David. The Matrix has similar themes as well, in terms of the guy who wants to unsee the truth and go back into The Matrix and is willing to do whatever it takes to do that. This idea of struggling with whether or not you want to wake up to the real truth, it's a very, very deep, resonant idea with many people. And The Matrix does it with the idea of the red pill versus the blue pill. While They Live does it through the putting on of sunglasses. Carpenter had now done two low-budget films in a row that had been financially pretty profitable, and his next project would see him returning to a big-budget Hollywood production with, let's just be brutally honest, some pretty shitty results. His next film would be the 1992 movie Memoirs of an Invisible Man. This film was based on a 1987 novel of the same name, and is about a businessman, played in the film by Chevy Chase, who accidentally gets exposed to a radioactive experiment that starts to turn him invisible. He then has to deal with that, while also evading government agents who are trying to capture him, all the while developing a romantic relationship with a woman, who in the film is played by Daryl Hannah. William Goldman, who is a very accomplished novelist and screenwriter who wrote, among many other things, The Princess Bride, actually did the original screenplay for it, intending it to be much more of a comedy than it actually ended up being. And Ivan Reitman was originally going to direct the film. Chevy Chase, who was probably at the peak of his career at the time, was going to star in it, and that attracted some big money backing because at the time, Chevy Chase movies were often making a lot of money. However, Chase apparently started to try to grab the reins of the direction that the film was going to take, and he wanted it to be less of a comedy than what Goldman and Reitman had intended, and so Goldman and Reitman both bailed on the project, and Chase kind of single-handedly kept the movie moving along, because he just really wanted to make it into a movie that could springboard him out of being just a comedic actor and into some more serious roles. Eventually, Carpenter was brought in to direct it, and perhaps he thought the film would be a change of pace after doing Prince of Darkness and They Live, and he seems to have been interested in the idea of working with Chevy Chase. The results, however, were not good. The film got very poor reviews at the time it came out, and things haven't really improved since. It also lost a lot of money. The only positive thing ever said about the movie that I've come across is that the special effects were pretty cutting edge for the time, but that's about it. I think I saw this movie on VHS soon after it came out on home video, and I really don't remember very much about it other than it was kind of boring and awkward, and I really wasn't sure how to think about this movie. It was like sort of a comedy, but not really. I know I didn't like it at the time, and I really haven't had a desire to rewatch it ever since. From what I understand, this film is basically trying to be some sort of a sci-fi romance comedy, which Starman also was, but by comparison, Starman was a much better film. Carpenter has said that part of the problem with the film was that they were trying to only make it a little bit funny, but not too funny because, like I said, Chevy Chase was trying to use the film to springboard him into being a more serious actor. And so the movie ended up being kind of neither fish nor foul. It's sort of a comedy, but not really. Now, sometimes when you blend genres, it's possible to really fuck it up. I like genre blending when it's done well, but it's very easy to do not well. One of the biggest vulnerabilities on this front is in terms of what movie people refer to as tone, the tone of a film. This becomes additionally dangerous when you're dealing with an actor whose prior experience is entirely comedic, but who's taking on a serious role. Not only in terms of what the actor's capabilities are, but also the fact that audiences are used to perceiving this person as a very funny, goofy sort of an actor. And it's hard for people to make that transition mentally into seeing one of their favorite comedy actors being all serious, it's tough to pull off. Some actors have successfully pulled this off. Tom Hanks and Robin Williams come to mind as actors whose careers were initially almost all comedic, but who eventually became very respectable, quote-unquote, serious actors, too. Unfortunately, though, Chevy Chase is no Tom Hanks or Robin Williams. Of this film and its failure, Carpenter says, quote, When I look back on it now, the movie is not nearly as bad as I thought it was. It was a noble try but a failure. It was a project I wanted to do with an actor I wanted to work with. I thought it would be a fun experience, but it wasn't. It was such an unpleasant experience that for the first time I thought maybe I shouldn't direct anymore. This is not what I want. It was a real turning point. There were some positive things that came out of it, but all in all, I would say that it isn't one of my favorite films, end quote. And to put it mildly, it's not one of my favorite films either, and critics seem to agree. The film currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of 23, making it, I believe, Carpenter's second-worst-reviewed film. Making it, I believe, Carpenter's second-worst-reviewed film at Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording, edging out Ghosts of Mars, which we'll get to soon, by just a smidge of one percent. On a $40 million budget, the film only made around $14 million, so it was a financial disaster. After that failure, Carpenter's next project as a director would be a return to the small screen, doing a horror anthology for Showtime called Body Bags, which came out in 1993. Now, honestly, I didn't even know about Body Bags until I started doing my research for this DHP coverage of Carpenter, probably because I grew up without cable. So, I still haven't seen Body Bags, any episodes of it, as of this recording. It is on my list to eventually check out, though. It got decent reviews, and it sounds like it's Carpenter doing what he's good at, and if it suddenly popped up on Netflix or something, I'd probably give it a shot ASAP. Body Bags has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 73, and LeBlanc and Odell write of it, quote, Overall, Body Bags may be a minor work, but it never fails to entertain, and at its best is more scary and tense than virtually any of its contemporaries, End quote. And that definitely sounds intriguing to me for sure. Carpenter's next feature film directing credit would be yet another return to the horror genre. And that would be 1995's In the Mouth of Madness. Carpenter directed the film and did the music along with someone named Jim Lang, but he did not write it. The film stars Sam Neill as an insurance investigator named John Trent, who is hired by a large publishing firm called Arcane Publishing to investigate the whereabouts of a horror author named Sutter Kane, an obvious play on Stephen King, though in the film they say that Kane is bigger than King. Sutter Kane has apparently disappeared just before his new book is to be published. Trent suspects it's all a publicity stunt, and he's very skeptical, but then an axe-wielding maniac attacks him in a restaurant and almost kills him before he gets shot by police. And right before that, the maniac had asked Trent, Do you read Sutter Kane?" And it turns out that maniac was Kane's agent, and that he'd apparently gone insane after reading Kane's latest book. Trent then meets with the head of the publishing company, played by Charlton Heston, and he is sent off to investigate the whereabouts of both Kane and his manuscript, accompanied by Kane's editor, who's a woman named Linda Stiles, played by Julie Carmen. Trent realizes that there are lines on the cover of Kane's books that, when put together, create a map of New Hampshire, which apparently is to Kane what Maine is to Stephen King. And this map shows the location of a town called Hobbs End, which is a fictional place that's, I guess, kind of like Kane's equivalent of Castle Rock, Maine. Trent and Styles set out to find Hobbs End, and they do. And then all kinds of crazy shit starts happening. Eventually, they find Sutter Kane, but they find all kinds of horrible stuff, too. And it turns out that Kane's work does have this supernatural ability to manipulate reality and also to drive people crazy and cause all sorts of horrible things to happen. I won't spoil all the details, but let's just say that basically by the end, Trent is in an insane asylum and civilization is falling apart because of Sutter Kane's book, and it ends on a deliciously downbeat note, as a film version of the novel is getting ready to be released, which is of course sure to drive crazy all the people who've been saved by the fact that they're not fiction readers. Other than Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness is Carpenter's other most Lovecraftian film. Financially, the film was a bit of a flop, basically breaking even, earning back right around its $9 million budget, and the reviews weren't great. The current Rotten Tomatoes score for this film is 59. Personally, I like this film a lot more than most critics. It's another Carpenter film that would be in my top ten, but perhaps not in my top five. I'd give this something like a low B letter grade, around 80%. It could be better, and there are some things about it I don't like, but overall I do like the movie, and I like the premise of a book and or movie that literally drives people insane. It's an idea that Carpenter would later revisit in 2005 in Cigarette Burns, which is the first of two episodes he did in the Masters of Horror series on Showtime. In an interview, Carpenter said, quote, If you look at The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness, they are like a trilogy, and they are very much the end of everything with different issues in each one. End quote. And in other interviews, he's referred to these three films collectively as his Apocalypse Trilogy. LeBlanc and Odell write of this film, quote, in terms of cerebral horror, In the Mouth of Madness is still a hugely underrated film, and maybe it will remain an oddity, because the genre has since moved in different directions. End quote. And elsewhere in their book, LeBlanc and Odell say that the film, quote, "...proved to be an interesting project, an attempt at a different kind of horror, with an intelligent edge, like Prince of Darkness." Unfortunately, lackluster distribution meant that it wasn't successful enough to start any trends, and it remains an interesting curio." Quote. Now, I have to say that, as much of a John Carpenter fan as I am overall, just to be totally honest, this film, In the Mouth of Madness, is the last Carpenter feature film that I have really liked. All the rest of the feature films he's directed— From then up until this recording, which is late 2018, are movies that range, in my humble but honest opinion, from okay to not so good to downright awful. In fact, a couple of his films after In the Mouth of Madness are, in my opinion and many others as well, some of the worst of his career. But I do like In the Mouth of Madness. Carpenter's next project would be a remake of the 1960 horror classic Village of the Damned, which was itself based on a novel called The Midwish Cuckoos by John Wyndham. Carpenter's remake would come out in 1995 and would have the same title as the 1960 film. The original book and movie were set in the UK, as Wyndham was a British writer, but Carpenter's remake is set in a small coastal California town sort of a little bit calls to mind the town where the fog was set. Christopher Reeve stars as the town's doctor, and Kirstie Alley stars as a scientist who works for the federal government and is trying to study the phenomenon that happens in the film. And among the other noteworthy people in the film, Mark Hamill plays the town's minister or priest, I forget which, technically they call him, and then Linda Kozlowski from... Crocodile Dundee plays one of the women in the town as well. This was the last movie that Christopher Reeve starred in before the accident that paralyzed him. It was actually while he was making this film that he purchased the horse that would end up causing the accident that paralyzed him. The premise of Village of the Damned is that one day, everyone in this little town passes out for six hours, and when they wake up, ten of the women in the town are pregnant including both a virgin and an older woman who hasn't had sex in a long time. And apparently the women were impregnated by aliens or something. I don't think it's ever really super clearly defined, but it's more or less seems to be aliens that are doing this. And all of the women end up carrying the babies to term and delivering them. And there are five boys and five girls, though one of the girls is stillborn. And all of the kids look almost the same, sort of like blue-eyed albinos with very fair hair and skin. They also have weird psychic abilities and a sort of hive mind among each other, and they start doing creepy and evil things which just build over the course of the film. And I'll leave my synopsis there. I will say that I actually just watched this film for the first time about a month ago. Somehow it just, you know... Slipped under my radar when it came out, and I just never really checked it out. And in my opinion, it's not a great film, though I don't think it's terrible either, it's just kind of blah. It does contain an admirable theme of distrusting authority, as pretty much all of Carpenter's films do, in the way that the federal government, through Kirstie Alley's character, tries to take advantage of the situation and manipulate everybody, but ultimately ends up doing more harm than good. And then, of course, there's also the evil of whatever is behind the impregnations in the first place, too, in terms of distrusting, you know, more powerful authorities, or whatever you want to call it. At the time it was released, this film was actually nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Sequel, Prequel, or Remake. Its current Rotten Tomatoes score is a 29. In contrast to the original 1960 film, which is currently rocking at a 92, which, I'll point out in case you didn't realize, is 29 backwards, perhaps ironically or appropriately or however the hell you want to think about it. Carpenter's version, aside from being panned by critics, also lost a lot of money. It made back a little less than half of its $22 million budget. Now, like I said, in my opinion, it's okay, but it's not great. It's certainly nowhere near Carpenter's best work, but it's also not his absolute worst. It's Better, for example, than Memoirs of an Invisible Man or Ghosts of Mars, in my humble opinion. And it does sport a classic Carpenter soundtrack, which I always do dig. Carpenter's next film would be a sequel of an earlier film of his that in some ways was so close to the original that it was almost a remake, and I think that kind of confused people. And of course, I'm talking about the 1996 film Escape from L.A., Aside from directing the film, Carpenter also shared writing credits on the film with Deborah Hill and with Kurt Russell, and Carpenter also scored the film along with someone named Shirley Walker. Kurt Russell would, of course, be reprising the role of Snake Plissken that he played in Escape from New York, and other famous co-stars who appeared in the film would include Steve Buscemi, Bruce Campbell, Stacy Keach, and Pam Greer. The plot is in many ways almost a rehash of Escape from New York, only now it's L.A., and L.A. has, like New York in the earlier film, become an open-air prison, in part made possible because an earthquake has conveniently turned L.A. into an island. Actor Cliff Robertson plays a right-wing, theocratic sort of a president who offers Snake a pardon from his many crimes if he will go into L.A. and retrieve a weapon from a revolutionary named Cuervo Jones— who stole the weapon by brainwashing the president's daughter into stealing it and giving it to him. This weapon can knock out all electronic devices on the entire planet. Snake Plissken goes in and has an adventure in the city similar in a lot of ways to his adventure in Escape from New York, only it's a bit less dark, and Carpenter tries to make everything bigger, brighter, and more grandiose, aided by CGI. I won't go through the details too much. Honestly, I haven't watched this movie in probably over 10 years, and I don't really have a burning desire to do so. But basically, I'll say that as the film goes on, we kind of see that Cuervo Jones is a wannabe left wing dictator, in contrast to the right wing dictator president, and that ultimately Snake Plissken isn't a fan of either one of them and doesn't want to live in a world ruled by either one of them. Now, I like this point or theme or whatever you want to call it but I don't think the film is nearly as good at making this point as it could have been if it had been simply a better film I still like Kurt Russell's Snake Plissken as a character but this film just doesn't have what the original has and it's hard to put your finger on it exactly I think it's a combination of a bunch of things Perhaps the bigger budget of Escape from L.A. makes it have less of kind of a scrappy punk underdog feel than Escape from New York. To me, Escape from L.A. just feels campier than Escape from New York. LeBlanc and Odell say of this film, quote, Escape from L.A. isn't so much a sequel as a rerun of its predecessor. Bigger, louder, dumber. Its patent formula of road movie set pieces and a tight time limit echoing the rule, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. While this approach means that Escape from L.A. is an enjoyable science fiction action romp, it does beg inevitable comparisons with the original and sadly finds itself wanting. While it ups the ante in terms of ludicrous set pieces and playful gadgets, giving it the feel of a more upbeat, less grimy punk film, the overall message is unremittingly grim, topping the nihilistic aspects of the first. End quote. So in some ways, it's kind of like the relationship between the Star Wars films A New Hope and The Force Awakens. The latter is simultaneously a sequel, but also virtually a remake in terms of its story structure and premises and so forth. However, I will admit that The Force Awakens, despite its flaws, and it certainly has them, The Force Awakens is nonetheless a much better film than Escape from L.A., if I'm being brutally honest. The same is not true of The Last Jedi, in my humble opinion, by the way. The Last Jedi is worse than Escape from L.A. And at least one part, although I don't think it's by any means the whole story, at least one part of why this film seems inferior to and more dated than the much earlier and lower budget Escape from New York is the effects. LeBlanc and Odell say of Escape from L.A.'s effects, quote, it's a touch ironic that the cheap but imaginative effects of Escape from New York now actually look less dated than those of the then state-of-the-art Escape from L.A., while the things in-camera prosthetic work and timeless matte paintings are still pinnacles of the non-digital effects world, end quote. And elsewhere, they say that the fact that a lot of the film's effects are CGI, and speaking of Escape from L.A., is a problem because, quote, The problem with CGI as opposed to conventional effects work is that, being in its infancy at the time, it had a tendency to date quickly. And I certainly agree with all that. In most instances, I actually prefer most of a film's effects to be done through practical means if at all possible, and to have CGI work be used only when totally necessary to telling the story, and it should be used as sparingly as possible relative to the story that you're trying to sell. A good example of a film that does this well is Mad Max Fury Road, which is mostly practical effects, but does have some CGI stuff in it. But the whole thing looks and feels so much more real than a lot of movies that are just orgies of cgi now even the much better cgi effects of today relative to 20 years ago can become very quickly mind-numbing almost like watching the screen while someone else plays a sensory overloading video game when they're overused and you could see among the many countless examples of this sort of thing being done in recent times all of the Transformers movies, among many, many other films that we could name. And things are even worse when we're talking about much more primitive CGI of 20 years ago, In Escape from L.A., which I haven't watched in a very long time, I remember in particular the scene where Snake Plissken is surfing through town on some sort of a tsunami, while a Dick Dale song plays on the soundtrack, that this whole scene was just extremely fake-looking, like enough to be off-putting, rather than, you know, practical effects that are a little bit charmingly not perfect. This was just off-putting. On another note, that of the film's rebellious but downbeat, sort of anarcho-primitivist ending, which somewhat contrasts with the fact that a lot of the film is more upbeat feeling than Escape from New York, LeBlanc and Odell write, quote, Cuervo is as brutal as the ostensibly squeaky-clean president he hopes to depose, and just as much a dictator. Given the choice between these two forms of slavery, both left and right wing, Snake takes the most extreme option. He takes them all out. The world is plunged into darkness because Snake has an attitude and believes in personal liberty. If he can't have freedom, then nobody can. End quote. Now again, I love that overall idea, that idea of rebelling against both the authoritarian left and the authoritarian right. And I think Snake Pliskin is just the right character to do that sort of thing. But I just wish the film was a bit better in its overall execution both in terms of that particular theme and just everything else about the story and the script. It's not as good of a film as its predecessor, but I also think it's not all that bad if you don't take it too seriously and just sort of approach it as campy fun. The Rotten Tomato score for this film currently stands at 52. Personally, I'd give it a bit better than that. I'd give it a C, maybe even a C C+, depending on my mood. Interestingly, Carpenter himself was very positive on this film in a 2015 interview so, you know, 20 years approximately after the film came out, and he said, quote, Escape from L.A. is better than the first movie, ten times better. It's got more to it. It's more mature. It's got a lot more to it. I think some people didn't like it because they felt it was a remake, not a sequel. I suppose it's the old question of whether you like Rio Bravo or El Dorado better. They're essentially the same movie. They both had their strengths and weaknesses. I don't know. You never know why a movie's going to make it or not. People didn't want to see Escape that time, but they really didn't want to see the thing. You just wait. You've got to give me a little while. People will say, you know, what was wrong with me? End quote. Well, we'll see about that. Maybe I ought to rewatch Escape from LA one of these days, just to see if there's anything to what Carpenter said in 2015 or not. He says it's 10 times better than Escape from New York. Well, it almost is in terms of its budget. Here's something very interesting. Escape from New York was made for only $6 million. And it's definitely a superior film in mine and most critics' opinions. It also earned $25 million, almost exactly the same amount of money as Escape from L.A. earned, only the L.A.'s budget was around $50 million, so it lost a ton of money. Also, Escape from New York made its $25 million in 1981, while Escape from L.A. made the same dollar amount 15 years later. So, adjusted for inflation, Escape from New York was an infinitely more profitable movie. This also proves that a bigger budget is no substitute for all of the other factors that can make a movie potentially great. None of the big-budget films Carpenter has directed have done really well at the box office, with the partial exception of Starman, although even that didn't do great, it wasn't a giant blockbuster. Though two of his big-budget films, namely The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China, are ones that eventually developed a cult following, which includes me in both cases, and these are films that are now pretty positively regarded by the majority of critics— So, while Carpenter has made some bad films that had a low budget, and he's made a few good films that have a big budget, in general, the correlation seems to be that he does a lot of his best work on a small budget, and a lot of his worst work on a big budget. Now, supposedly, after Escape from L.A.'s reception, Carpenter was even considering quitting the movie business altogether, though ultimately he did not. The next film Carpenter would direct is one that, When I saw the trailers back when I was in high school and it was about to come out, I really wanted to see it, I really wanted to love it, and I really thought I would love it. Because it was basically a combination of a vampire movie and a western. It was a horror western, and it was based on a John Steakley novel that I haven't read that shared the same name with the film version, simply Vampires. Although, in the case of the novel, the S at the end of the word Vampires was a dollar sign, which wasn't kept for the film version. John Carpenter's Vampires came out in 1998, and in this film, James Woods, back when he was still doing a fair amount of acting before he had become a full-time right-wing Twitter troll, in this film, Woods plays the leader of a group of vampire hunters who are sponsored by the Catholic Church, who are operating in the American Southwest. There's also one of the Baldwins, Not Alec, and not the super-Christian one either, but the one who I think has gotten into the most trouble with the law. That Baldwin is in the movie, too. A surprise attack by vampires near the beginning of the film kills most of the team of vampire hunters other than Woods and the Baldwin, and then they go on to get their revenge, ultimately going after the head vampire, who's a guy named Valak. And I'll leave the synopsis there and just say, it's not a great film, I don't want to dwell on it too long. It was a financial flop, it basically recouped its $20 million budget but didn't make much more than that, and the film got at the time and ever since mixed but mostly pretty negative reviews. Its Rotten Tomato score as of this recording stands at 38, and it's been a while since I've watched this one, and I don't really have a lot of urge to try to re-watch it. But based on my recollections. I'd also give this movie either an F-plus, or maybe if I'm feeling charitable, a D-minus. I just remember it was very disappointing to me at the time it came out. I was in high school at the time, and I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters soon after it was released, and I'm pretty sure I haven't seen it since. A vampire western film directed by John Carpenter. On paper, I really should have loved this movie. It should have been awesome. Awesome. If only it were even kind of good, I probably would have loved it. But it wasn't even kind of good. I do remember the film having an interesting visual style that I liked, which is something that the few positive reviews that are out there on this movie will mention very often. But I remember the script being mediocre, the characters being mostly flat and uninteresting, and the film's seeming attempts at humor falling flat... And just overall, the film was sort of like a downbeat gore fest that's mostly just kind of boring. It just doesn't have that spark that Carpenter's best films have, unfortunately. Now, I've liked many of James Woods' roles in other films, but I just thought he wasn't that great in this one, and I didn't buy his character. And I thought the guy who played the head vampire wasn't great, although to be fair, that may in part be due to the script. But yeah, vampires? Not a fan. Carpenter's next film after that is another one that I really wanted to like and I really should have liked. Of all things, it's a space western slash horror film. It mixes western sci fi and horror into one film. On paper, in theory, this should have been amazing, but unfortunately, it ended up being even worse than Vampires. And I'm talking about the 2001 film, Ghosts of Mars. Now, from what I understand, this film was originally conceived of as being a snake Bliskin movie, and it was going to be called Escape from Mars. Obviously, it was going to star Kurt Russell, but after Escape from L.A.'s disastrous loss of money, that simply was not going to happen. So it was modified into a non snake Bliskin movie. Ghosts of Mars stars Natasha Henstridge, the rapper Ice Cube, and Jason Statham back before he was a big-name action hero. And it tells the story of a team of cops on Mars who are transporting a prisoner to a remote mining settlement, and then they find the settlement seemingly deserted, but then it turns out that the miners have been possessed by ghosts of an ancient Martian civilization, and that this has made them into crazy violent killers— sort of like the Reavers in Firefly, if you've seen that. The cops start getting killed, and the survivors have to team up with the convict to try and fight their way out of it. Now, it's a cool premise, and it could potentially have been a really cool movie, but it just isn't. It mixes a lot of Carpenter tropes and themes, Story-wise, it's basically a blend of Assault on Precinct 13 and Escape from New York, only set on another planet and with a strong horror element in it. Again, in theory, I should love this film, and in practice, it's just a failure. I don't want to spend too much time on this film either. I... Remember seeing the trailers for it just before it came out and in the case of this movie even by the trailers I could tell oh this just looks like it's going to be bad. And I think that was mostly because of even in the trailer you get these clips of Ice Cube saying this cheesy action dialogue and it just didn't seem like the right person to be in this sort of a movie. I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I eventually rented it when it came out on DVD. But regardless I was not impressed to say the least. I haven't watched the movie since then, and I don't plan to. My memories of it are pretty vague, other than it did suck and my worst fears that I had from the trailer were realized. Even LeBlanc and Odell, who tend to be much more positive on Carpenter's worst films than I am, say, quote, In effect, Ghosts of Mars is the ultimate genre movie. Unfortunately, though, Ghosts of Mars never quite lives up to the sum of its parts, and partly rather like vampires— The blame can be laid on the structure. And regarding the latter comment, they're talking about story structure, and Ghosts of Mars has been criticized for many things, including the fact that it uses a sort of start at the end and tell the story through flashbacks sort of a structure, which can sometimes work in some films, but it just doesn't work well for this one. This movie was widely panned by critics when it came out, and has been ever since. It currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of just 21%, making it as of this recording Carpenter's worst-reviewed film out of all those that he's directed. This movie was also a box office clusterfuck, too, and only made back about half of its $28 million budget. This one is neck-and-neck just one point even worse than Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and I would agree with that assessment. I do think it's too bad that the original idea of having this be a Snake Plissken film didn't go through, as it's possible the movie might have ended up better if that had been the case. Now, it still might have been a pretty cruddy film if nothing else about it were changed, of course, but at least Snake Plissken would have been better in this sort of a film than Ice Cube, for God's sake. In between Ghosts of Mars and his next feature film, Carpenter directed two episodes of the Showtime anthology series Masters of Horror, which was a very interesting series that ran for two seasons, from 2005 to 2007. A lot of famous horror movie directors made episodes of this show, including, aside from Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Dario Argento, and John Landis, just to name a few. A fair number of the episodes in this show were based on short stories by famous writers like H.P. Lovecraft, Joe Lansdale, Clive Barker, and Bentley Little, and the latter episode was based on Bentley Little's story The Washingtonians, which I talked about a bit in my episode on the Whiskey Rebellion a long, long time ago. Now, I haven't seen all the different episodes of this series. Each episode is basically like a standalone minifilm about an hour long but I've probably seen around half of the 26 episodes of the show, and most of the ones I've seen have actually been pretty good. And because it's showtime, they can seemingly get away with things that even R-rated feature films might shy away from. I really thought this was a cool show, but keep in mind, I'm a horror movie fan, so your mileage may vary if it's not your favorite genre. Now, Carpenter's episodes of Masters of Horror weren't based on pre-existing short stories. Both of his were written by two writers named Drew McWeenie and Scott Swan. Both of his episodes had their music done by Carpenter's son Cody, and the music is pretty similar to his father's style. The first of Carpenter's episodes, which is called Cigarette Burns, is my favorite between the two. It stars Norman Reedus, who's now famous as Daryl from The Walking Dead, a show which I long ago nicknamed The Jumping Shark. But anyway, Norman Reedus stars as an expert on rare films, who's hired to track down the last existing copy of an obscure French film that supposedly causes its viewers to become crazily violent when they watch it. Needless to say, all kind of dark shit ensues. This episode shares its basic premise to some degree with both In the Mouth of Madness, as well as the Johnny Depp film The Ninth Gate, which I'm also a big fan of. And that film, by the way, is based on the book El Club Dumas, of which I am also a big fan. In In the Mouth of Madness, you're dealing with a book that eventually gets turned into a film, while in The Ninth Gate, you're dealing with just a book, But in all cases, you're looking at someone hired to find a missing book or film that has this kind of almost mythical reputation of having dark supernatural capabilities that include making people crazy and violent and that sort of thing. While Cigarette Burns doesn't have the time to flesh out its premise as fully as either The Ninth Gate or In the Mouth of Madness, it still does a pretty good job, considering the episodes of this show only run about an hour. Cigarette Burns is pretty damn dark and a bit graphic in spots, but I like it quite a bit. Carpenter's second episode, Pro-Life, has an interesting premise. A woman has been demonically impregnated and is trying to get an abortion, and her crazy right-wing religious father, who's played by Ron Perlman, as well as her brothers, are trying to stop her from getting the abortion. It's an interesting twist on the issue of abortion as well as the horror trope of the demon baby, but I just don't think the premise is handled or executed as skillfully as it could have been. And while I like Ron Perlman, and while it's been probably at least around 10 years since I've watched this episode, I remember thinking at the time that it seemed to sometimes degenerate into being a parody of itself— But honestly, I don't remember much more detail than that as far as what my criticisms were. After the Masters of Horror episodes, the next film that Carpenter directed would end up being, as of this recording at least, the last film he's directed so far. And that's the film The Ward, which came out in 2010. The film is set in the mid-1960s and stars Amber Heard as a young woman who ends up in a mental institution where scary things are happening to her, and I'll just kind of leave the premise at that. I saw this movie soon after it was released on DVD, at least, I think, I'm pretty sure I was still getting DVDs from Netflix back around 2010, and I thought it was pretty good but not great. I basically liked it, but I haven't felt much urge to rewatch it ever since. Critics apparently didn't agree with my guardedly somewhat positive assessment, and they mostly panned it. It currently holds a Rotten Tomatoes score of just 33, and I think this movie is better than that. I'd give the war a solid C. Though I would agree it's nowhere close to being anywhere near Carpenter's best work. Though I do think it's miles better than Ghosts of Mars, but of course that's really damning with faint praise. LeBlanc and O'Dell are also fairly positive on The Ward, and they write that it's, quote, a good solid film, strong in its horror techniques, and yet appropriate for a modern audience. And importantly, it does deliver the scares, end quote. And I'd agree. If you're into horror movies and you want to watch a decent movie that, you know, you know ahead of time isn't the greatest, but it's pretty good, it's certainly more than competent, it's worth watching sometime. to talk a bit about some recurring sort of themes and motifs in Carpenter's work. A common one that we've already encountered again and again in pretty much all of his movies, at least to some degree, is the idea of kind of paranoia in general and a distrust of authority in particular, often contrasted with an individual who's at least trying to be heroic in some fashion. LeBlanc and Odell put it this way, quote, very often, the hero is the individual against the horde or the individual against authority, sometimes both. There is a vein of distrust for authoritative figures and organizations, especially when they betray the people they are meant to be protecting. End quote. When asked in a 2003 interview about how he often portrays organized groups in a fearful way, Carpenter responds, quote, Group evil is a really easy thing to come to, both in everyday life and in war. I'm very distrustful of groups, because I had an experience once. I was in a summer camp and I was a counselor. We divided up the camp like in a color war and competed in sports. And some competitors got so intense that they wanted to kill each other over nothing. I think a group mentality courts the reptile brain in each of us. It courts the deep part of the cortex that is still cold blooded, and that's bad. So that's why I'm distrustful of groups. End quote. And it sounds a lot there like comments that have been made very often by George Carlin, as well as sometimes even by me. And along with that, there's often this kind of pessimism, this sort of darkness in Carpenter's works, just sort of an ominous sense or a downbeat sense, and LeBlanc and Odell put it this way, quote, possibly one of the reasons that Carpenter has remained relatively marginalized in Hollywood is that, despite their upbeat pacing and witty dialogue, most of his films end on a downbeat note. Even when the heroes triumph, their victory is pyrrhic. All this pessimism is anathema to Hollywood, which expects the audience to feel good leaving the cinema. But paradoxically, the films never feel downbeat while you are watching them. End quote. And I agree with that. There's this weird thing where it's like, at least in a lot of Carpenter's films, they can be pessimistic without being depressing, if that makes any sense. And in his films, when you have this individual against the horde and this distrust of groups and this pessimism, you often end up in situations in which Carpenter's protagonists are literally or metaphorically trapped in some way and are struggling with how to deal with this. When asked about how often the protagonists in his movies are in some way trapped in sort of ever-narrowing places or situations or even in mental constructs, Carpenter responded, quote, It started when I was very young, fantasizing about cowboy movies. Then when I grew up as a person and got more mature as an adult, it began to be obvious that one can be trapped in hundreds of ways. You can be trapped in a neighborhood like this all your life, you can be trapped in paradise, you can be trapped in your mind, you can be trapped emotionally. No matter what it seems, we are all trapped some way or another by something our past, our genetic code, our culture, our parents. I think also that unhappiness is certainly probably where part of my ideas came from. It was not fun being trapped. I was very depressed for many years. I didn't get over it until I was, I think, in my mid-twenties, and I had to do a lot of work to get rid of it." End quote. The idea of being progressively trapped, physically or metaphorically over the course of a movie, getting more and more trapped, is a common one in many of Carpenter's films, and Halloween and Prince of Darkness spring immediately to mind in the physical-literal sense of being trapped, as both of those films have some very scary scenes during the third act, with characters literally hiding in closets from evil-threatening entities. Another thing that Carpenter features again and again in many of his films, and that's something that, like many of his sort of filmmaking tricks or signature moves, is influenced by Howard Hawks, is the presence of strong and interesting female characters. They're often spunky, tough, they have personality, they're competent, and so on, and yet they can still be sexy and clearly feminine. And Carpenter does this in a way that's believable, that's not some over-the-top SJW nonsense, nor is it unrealistic female action sequences, you know, like when the 99-pound woman easily knocks out a bunch of 250-pound super-muscular men. To me, a strong female character done right would be a lot of Carpenter's female stars, as well as the classic Sigourney Weaver as Ripley in Alien. And when it's done well, you buy it, and you don't see it as clear tokenism or as awkwardly trying to artificially shoehorn a story into some prepackaged ideological narrative. Another common element and aesthetic, in this case, in many of Carpenter's films is that of urban decay and sort of a sense of civilizational decline, sometimes even with a pre- or post-apocalyptic feel. Prince of Darkness, They Live, Escape from New York, and Assault on Precinct 13 spring most readily to my mind in that regard, but many others do as well. And Carpenter definitely has a trademark visual style, of which this sense of decay and urban decline is just one part. Stephen Smith, in The John Carpenter Companion, writes, quote, The familiar trademarks and techniques of John Carpenter are empty rooms and streets. Emptiness represents suspicion and generates anticipation. Flawed Hoxian heroes we can sort of relate to. Pyrrhic victories. Distrust of government and authority. Electronic music with accentuating notes. A love of anamorphic panavision and minimal exposition when telling a story. End quote. And that last bit is basically the idea of show don't tell. In his best films, Carpenter's good at doing that show don't tell. And crappy movies very often will have more telling than showing. And the same's true of crappy novels. Carpenter's also very good with minimalism in a variety of ways. LeBlanc and Odell describe one of Carpenter's signature techniques in filmmaking as, quote, The art of depicting nothing. An empty room is ominous because cinema is generally concerned with action. Emptiness represents suspicion or disruption of order. Carpenter uses the principle to elicit concern in the viewer and create anticipation. There are two main ways he uses the device the first to compound unease, and the second to lead up to a revelation, be it plot or simply a scare. Sometimes both are employed, end quote. And of course, many, though not all, of Carpenter's films feature soundtracks that he wrote or co-wrote, usually with a very distinctive style, featuring a lot of ominous synthesizers, sometimes mixed in with other things like driving rock guitar riffs, and even some of his crappier movies will still have cool soundtracks. And aside from the actual soundtracks to some of his films, I would also like to highly recommend the albums Lost Themes and Lost Themes 2, which consist of instrumental music written by Carpenter that actually have not been used in his films. And if you like the soundtracks of a lot of his films, you'll love Lost Themes 2. In fact, I've actually been listening to Carpenter music, both from his soundtracks and from Lost Themes, during a lot of the many hours I've spent working on these episodes about John Carpenter. Now I want to talk a little bit about Carpenter's politics and his ideology, because it's very kind of complicated. John Carpenter's stated political beliefs seem to be sort of somewhat hazy, left of center, but relatively mainstream. By no means full-on communist or socialist, and frankly not very worked out in detail. Political theory and political activism really don't seem to be his bag, and I think he's the first to admit that. In fact, when Giles Bullinger asked Carpenter about a statement that his then-wife, Adrienne Barbeau, made back in 1979, when Barbeau said that Carpenter was one of the few people in Hollywood who wasn't a political activist of some sort, Carpenter responded, quote, I have been pretty apolitical all my life, and yet I make political movies. It's hard to explain. Having a cause, to me, means that at least you have a solution— and I don't really have a lot of solutions to problems. I wouldn't know how to solve poverty, for instance, because there's no way to solve it. So haranguing you today and saying, don't you realize how many people are poor is useless to me? End quote. When asked about the political thinking behind They Live, Carpenter says it's mostly a reaction against what he saw as the worst aspects of Reaganism. And all of a sudden, he starts to sound like an apologist for the bipartisan establishment politics— of the two decades or so following World War II saying things like quote I'm sorry but we didn't win World War II with a smaller government we didn't send the man to the moon with a smaller government we didn't if you want to look at it this way have a part in ending the Soviet Union and communism with a tiny little government it didn't work that way i don't want a small government it scares me i want something big even if it is inefficient this all comes from what my vision of life was way back in the 50s in America. We had this enormous, huge government that we looked up to because there was a belief in it, even though a lot of terrible things happened—Korea, Vietnam. And the very people who are the centers of power have destroyed all of that. It's hard for me to believe that all the ideals that I had when I was young, and the things that my parents taught me, are so devalued now. I'm disillusioned as well by the cowardice of the people of my own generation. We were the baby boomers, and we are a bunch of cowards. We didn't stand by what we believed in. We bailed out. We got scared. To be a human being doesn't mean just being the ultimate consumer. We are turning into the very things that we used to hate. But if I step back and look at myself, I have to say I like making money. I made a fortune making movies, and I'm not donating it to the poor. So, I can see myself in the same trap as any human being. So, there, in a lot of places, Carpenter sounds like a rather generic mainstream center left status, although a somewhat self contradictory one, to be sure. However, shortly after giving that answer, when Carpenter was asked about how often his movies seem to bring up the idea of questioning authority, he then says, quote, I think that we ought to question authority always, because even though civil servants represent authority, it doesn't mean they are right. We make gods of our presidents, and that's a very dangerous thing. And the minute you hear them talking about their place in history, you know you are in trouble. End quote. Which sounds very rebellious, perhaps even borderline anarchistic. But then, when he's asked if anarchism is the solution to this problem, Carpenter then says, quote, I'm not an anarchist, even though I make movies that seem to say that. I think that there needs to be a certain amount of order in the world. I think we need to live our lives under certain kinds of laws and codes. I believe a great deal in America. I think it's the best there is. It's fucked beyond belief, but it's the best there is." So, you have a situation where like most people who haven't ever really made a systematic study of things like philosophy and political science, which, let's be honest, is in fact the vast majority of human beings who've ever lived past and present, like most of those people, Carpenter just doesn't really have a fully worked-out, systematic, non-contradictory ideology. And as such, things can sometimes sound a bit vague and self-contradictory. However, on an instinctive gut- visceral level, on an aesthetic level, and perhaps just in general in his subconscious. He seems to be pretty consistently anarchistic in his overall sympathies and attitudes as displayed by his art, something that clearly comes through in most of his films, at least in some way and to some degree, and something that he even openly says from time to time, although then next moment he'll deny being an anarchist. And as a result, Since, like all good artists, a lot of what he's creating is really coming from his subconscious rather than from his conscious mind, the philosophy and politics of his art actually ends up being a bit different from what he says his philosophy and politics are, and it ends up being much more radical. There are just too many instances in his films in which at least one of the villains is an authority figure of some sort, and in which a protagonist is taking a heroic and rebellious stand against big, powerful institutions, often including the U.S. federal government. So, I'm saying he may think he's some sort of New Deal liberal, consciously, but I think his subconscious is a radical anarchist and it comes through in a lot of his films. And this is one of the main reasons that Carpenter's films had such a resonance and influence for me, even when I was a kid. Aside from the fact that I generally like his visual style, and I love his soundtracks, and I often love his protagonists, this overall sense of pessimism about big, established institutions and authorities and hierarchies, but still having a respect for individuals who take a stand against such things, even when they seem to be doomed, even when they might actually be doomed. These things made a mark on my worldview, in a way that I don't think I fully appreciated until I was an adult. But they were at work, even when I was a kid and a teenager, watching some of Carpenter's best films. Now, before we close out this episode, I do want to share with you my top 10 favorite John Carpenter films. And this list is going to be in order of their release date. I tried to come up with a ranking by preference, you know, with like one being my favorite and 10 being my least favorite of the top 10, and I just couldn't do it. So these are going to be in the order in which they were released. My 10 favorite John Carpenter films. They are as follows. Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, and In the Mouth of Madness. Now, if you put a gun to my head, metaphorically, of course, and demanded my top three, they are Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. Interestingly, by the way, these were all consecutive films of his. They were made in 1986, 1987, and 1988. Now, this might surprise a lot of people, my top three. They might assume that any Carpenter fan's top three favorite Carpenter movies would include at least one of the following. Halloween, Escape from New York, and The Thing. And while I love all of those movies, and they're all in my top ten, there's just something about They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, And Prince of Darkness, that just really resonates with me even more than Halloween or The Thing or Escape from New York. And one honorable mention that's not in my list because it's not a feature film, but I did like it that is the episode Cigarette Burns from the Masters of Horror series. I've tried to be as honest as possible in my coverage of Carpenter's body of work. Your mileage may vary, but just because I'm an overall huge Carpenter fan doesn't mean I love all of his work. Any creative person with a large body of work is going to produce some things that are just not as good, that for one reason or another or a combination of reasons they flop, and even some of their hardcore fans are disappointed by them. This is true not just to filmmakers in recent times, even some of the great literary figures of history, who are household names, are often known for only a relatively small portion of their collected works. And this is especially true if they were very prolific. So to take a couple of super famous examples, both William Shakespeare and Charles Dickens are really only known for a fairly small percentage of what they produced. And a lot of what they produced is pretty unknown stuff that no one but experts on these guys actually are familiar with, and a lot of it is not considered all that great. So that said, even though I've been pretty disappointed by most of Carpenter's work since In the Mouth of Madness, I still do consider myself, looking at the big picture, and in particular looking at him when he's at his best, I still consider myself a big-time John Carpenter fan. There's one last thing that I want to say in closing this episode out. John Carpenter is now in his 70s, and seems to have, at least for the time being, retired from directing. Since the Ward in 2010, the only major film credits I see for him are in regard to the 2018 Halloween film, in which he's credited as an executive producer and soundtrack composer, but I don't think he had a huge amount to do with the film directly, in terms of really shaping it. And while, if he really is just sick of making movies and all that, I would never, you know, try to urge someone to be miserable and come out of retirement, but at the same time I have to say— As an overall lover of his work, despite disliking several of his films, I really, really, really wish and hope that he would do at least one more film where he's not only the director, but the real auteur, writing, directing, and making the music, and ultimately having final cut and final say on everything. I would really, really love that. I'd hate for his last three films that he directed to be Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, and The Ward. The Ward is the only one of those that I even like at all, and it's still definitely not in my Top Carpenter Films list by any means. And I'd hate for the last film on which he was the triple threat of writer, director, and composer to be Ghosts of Mars. Whether it would end up being a good Big Trouble in Little China sequel, or something else entirely, or maybe one more Snake Plissken movie— or maybe even a pure Western, since that's always been one of Carpenter's favorite genres, but it's one in which he's never actually directed a feature film. I'd love to see him end his career on a high note. I do think he's still potentially capable of it. If he could get the right script or write the right script himself, if he could work with the right people, if he could work preferably on a modest budget, because that's when he tends to produce his best work more often than not, I think Cigarette Burns at least shows that Carpenter is still capable of producing some good stuff in the 21st century, despite the fact that his feature films of the last 20 years have been disappointing. I would really just love to see him crank out one more that was really a hit, regardless of whether it's a hit with mainstream audiences and mainstream critics, at least one that's a hit with his hardcore fans. I would just love to see that before he shuffles off this mortal coil one can dream, and one can wish. But regardless of whatever films he does or does not produce in his time left with us, he has earned the hallowed title of DHP Hero. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it and found value in it. And I'd like to give a special thanks to the following awesome individuals for helping me to keep doing what I'm doing. For signing up to support the show via Patreon, I'd like to thank Jeff, Michael, Tom, T. Borho, Ben, Jeannie. Thanks very much for stepping up to support the show. And I have some Amazon thank yous. First goes to Donald for ordering me the book The Forging of the American Empire by Sidney Lenz, and second goes to Mitch for ordering me the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. So thanks to both of you for being kind enough to each get me a book off of my Amazon wish list. If you like the show, please go to the website, DangerousHistoryPodcast.com, to find the show notes, including Amazon links for this and all other regular DHP episodes. You can also like and follow the show on Facebook and also follow the show on Twitter. And if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or however else you prefer to get your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me out to keep this thing going and growing and constantly improving, such as simply spreading the word to other people you think might like the show and leaving ratings and reviews in places like iTunes. You can also help the show financially. Go to profcj.org slash donate. And you'll find a bunch of different ways to do this, including a link to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash profcj. And for a pledge of just $5 per month, you'll have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else, early access to ad-free versions of all regular upcoming DHP episodes, and access to what I call vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. You'll also be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. Also on the donate page, you will find links to do one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, as well as donations via Bitcoin. Another great way you can help out the show is to do your Amazon shopping through any of the Amazon affiliate links and do your A-book shopping from any of my A-books affiliate links found anywhere on my website. I post Amazon affiliate links of items related to each episode in that episode's show notes. I also have generic Amazon and A-books affiliate links in the sidebar of the website, and if you go through any of those links to those sites and buy anything, even if it's not an item I specifically link to, I will get a small commission, and that helps me keep the show going. Also want to mention a continuing work in progress is my Dangerous Amazon Bibliography. If you go to profcj.org Amazon, that's profcj.org Amazon. There's also a link to it on the little post-it note on my website. And there you'll find a whole ton of Amazon links to books and movies organized by rough subject matter. And those are all things that have been a very big influence on me and on this show You know, not all of them are books I've cited as of yet somewhere on the show, but they're all books that have informed my thinking, many of which I have cited from and many of which I will cite from in the future to some degree or another. And of course, those being Amazon affiliate links, if you buy anything from any of those links, even if it's not the item itself that was linked to, but you click through to Amazon from one of those links, then buy something else, I will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. And this will help keep the Dangerous History Podcast rolling as well. Also, if you need some stock audiovisual materials, such as stock video to use in a film you're making, or music to put in a podcast, that sort of thing, check out Pond5.com. They have a great collection of high-quality, royalty-free material available for purchase, and please go there through my affiliate link if you'd like to help out this show. I've used a lot of music from Pond5 in my podcast episodes, including, by the way, all the great music in my Not-So-Civil War series that I'm always getting compliments and questions on. So if you go through the Pond5 affiliate link, if you purchase anything, I will get a commission from anything you buy at no additional cost to you, as with the Amazon links as well. And of course, be sure to patronize any other companies whose ads you may have heard on this episode, if you're at all interested in the products that they offer that's another way you can help out this show. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.